1: Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and sceptics to explore faith, please visit our website premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's PremierUnbelievable.com. And now, here's today's Unbelievable Classic Replay, hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, we've got another interesting biblical church debate for you today. Last week we were debating the resurrection. Well, this week we're asking, did the early church invent the Christology of Jesus over time? Uh, Did the early church Christology evolve? Yusuf Ismail is a Muslim in South Africa who regularly engages in debates with prominent Christian apologists and philosophers. Now, of course, in Islam, Jesus is regarded as a prophet, but not as co-equal with God, as Christians claim. Now Yusuf will be defending the common Islamic claim that the early church corrupted the message of Jesus and that his divine Christology developed over time. Jonathan McClatchy returns this week as our Christian guest. He was with me last week defending the resurrection. Alongside his work in biology, Jonathan has developed an apologetics ministry and regularly engages with Islamic commentators. He'll be defending the view that the church's view of Jesus as the divine son of God was no invention or evolution, but present from the time of the very first followers of Jesus. In many ways, today's show could be seen as a sequel to last week's when Jonathan was defending a sceptical Jew regarding the resurrection. So um, a very warm welcome to you both, uh, Jonathan and Yusuf. Great to have you with me today. Good to be here. Thank you, Justin.
2: Good to be here, Justin. Thank you. And uh, hello, Jonathan. Good to speak to you again.
1: Hi, Yusuf. Let's introduce you, Yusuf. As uh, It's been a while since you've been on the programme, but we we did have you, I think, with uh, James White, Uh, A while back, um, debating uh, what was it now? Was it the Trinity? Was it the Quran? I can't quite remember. I don't know if your memory is better Uh, than that. It was some
2: time back, I think 2013, (laughs) we we, we focused on something similar about the, again, whether Jesus was a prophet or whether he's in fact the divine Son of God. And there was a lot of focus on Calvinism and uh, contemporary Christianity and a bit of discussion, peace and violence and so on and so forth. But I think it's been about. Uh, three years ago three
1: or four years yeah, ago. yeah time flies doesn't it it really does
2: time flies i can't <laughs> believe it
1: <laughs> anyway thanks for joining us again on the program today yusuf just briefly sure. you're you're a lawyer out in south africa but rather like jonathan fits apologetics into his spare time you you do quite a bit of islamic apologetics effectively in your spare time don't you
2: yeah that's true i am a lawyer i primarily involved myself in a trial court criminal defense um, but I do also at the same time engage in interfaith dialogue and debate. I've been doing it since 2006-2007. Um, you know, like I mentioned the last time, well, I think, uh, there's no specialized field called apologetics within Islamic theology. Um, so unlike Christianity, where you've got a field of study called apologetics, which is focused purely on the defense of Christianity in Islam, we don't have a specific field called apologetics, but you could very well claim that uh, within the context of Dawah, um, we do involve ourselves in debating, defending, and of course engaging some of the critical issues, uh, particularly where there is so much of similarity and uh, common ground between Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other major religions, and of course deal with points uh, where there are divergences between the faiths, and so we do it respectfully and uh, I think it's healthy uh, just listening to the Brussels attack in the context of the climate that we're living in, this kind of discussion is more than needed Mm. now than ever.
1: Indeed. Um, I often find, I don't know if this is your experience, Jonathan, that young Islamic men are often better equipped for these kinds of debates than the average Christian. Um, I don't know whether Muslims are doing a better job of, if you like, training up people for defending Islam than Christians are doing defending, to uh, train up people to defend Christianity. Oh yeah, in my experience, the average Muslim probably knows more about the Bible than the average Christian knows about the Quran, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's um, been your interest? Again, just remind us briefly why you you've particularly majored on interacting with Islam as you developed your
3: own apologetics ministry. Well, as an undergraduate student at the University of Strathclyde up in Scotland, I um, began to interact with people of different worldviews, in particular Muslims, and I've always attended the Discover Islam Weeks so at the different university campuses that I've attended and just fascinated by the origins of Islam and the history of Islam and Islamic theology, where Islam and Christianity disagree as well as where they diverge and the reasons that we have for our differences of opinion on those matters.
1: So, in the end, you've not been convinced, obviously, by Islamic apologetics. Do you... Do you- Engage, though, in these kinds of discussions because you want to see Muslims become Christians, I guess, at the end of the day?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a, a number of different purposes for doing debates with Muslims. One of them, of course, is I, I, I want to proclaim the gospel because I think the gospel is such an important message. And I want to see people saved and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Lord and saviour. And and also, I think it's really important to inform people on both sides about the issues, so they can make informed and rational decisions about what what worldview to subscribe to. Mm. Uh, so so there's there's a few purposes there. Well, we're going to be discussing
1: this question of whether the early church invented or, or evolved a Christology over time, um, and uh, this is something we actually tackled a couple of years ago now with Bart Ehrman, um, who's probably well-known within this field. His book, um, uh, How Jesus Became God, effectively made the case that I, I'm guessing, Yusuf, you're going to be pursuing today. Um, Bart Ehrman, quite popular in many ways uh, as a New Testament critic among Islamic um, apologists, uh, I've, I've found. Is, is that the case for you, Yusuf?
2: Yes, certainly it is. Um, there, there is increasingly, over the couple of years, you know, you know. If one looks at the 80s, I was still in in primary school, and so. <laughs> but in the 80s and the 90s, you had a, a, a lot of popularity in the works of uh, the late Ahmed Dida, and um, you know, a, lo, a, lo, a lot of his discussions were very much um, populist in nature uh, in the context of apartheid South Africa, and there seems to be a shift, or rather, a transition um, in discussions now amongst Muslim apologists or Muslim debaters, whereby. They tend to rely a lot on the primary material um, that is being developed and discussed within the scholarly circles. And and Bart Ehrman um, seems to be somewhat popular. He's a, a radical uh, skeptic, uh, but he's still basically viewed as um, generally acceptable within the scholarly fraternity. And of course, there are other scholars such as uh... you know Bruce Metzger, the late Bruce Metzger, uh... people like Raymond Brown, and so on. So there's a whole host of individuals that are now uh, finding their way into the, the so called, um, discourse that is being, uh, discussed and dealt with by Muslims mm. on various levels. What, what? Bart Ehrman seems to be very popular, um, uh, from a Muslim perspective, certainly, uh, there are aspects which Bart would mention that are obviously not, um, au fait with Islam, uh, but particularly in respect of, Demonstrating or representing what the historical Jesus is, um, many Muslims would appeal to some of the argumentations that are contained in his works.
1: Well, let's uh, go to his yeah, thing. let's go to um to Jonathan just to s- lay the ground a little bit for this. Um, first of all, Christology—that phrase alone may be a little bit mysterious to some people. Um, do you want to just explain what Christology is? So,
3: Christology is the study of Christ and the nature of Christ, the identity of Christ is. Uh, Christ, a uh, you know, uh, uh, tr- traditional Orthodox Christian Christology is that Christ is both God and man. He is fully God and fully man. He has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Um, and so the issue that we're discussing is did the cr- the early church concept of who Christ is evolve gradually over time? Did it take a long time for mm. the idea that Christ is divine to develop? Or is that a very primitive belief that res- that, that is found in the, in the earliest sources?
1: And what's the importance of this debate? In regard to the, the the reliability, the validity of Islam or Christianity.
3: Well, um, from a Christian point of view, of course, it's uh, it's absolutely fundamental that Christ is, is divine. Um, that's absolutely essential um, for the Christian uh, uh, worldview. Um, from uh, from an Islamic point of view. Uh, the Qur'an, uh, of course, denies that Christ is divine on numerous occasions. Um, for example, in Surah 5, verse 75, um, it's, it says, Jesus, Jesus, the the son of Mary and the messenger of Allah, was no more than a messenger. There have been messengers before him. Um, and Surah 6, verse 101 says, Far be it from Allah that he should, ha- he should have a son. How can he have a son when he never had a wife? So it denies the sonship of Christ there. From an Islamic point of view also, the Qur'an specifically contends that the original disciples and followers and acquaintances of jesus were actually muslims um so it just um, to give an example from the quran in surah 3 uh, verse 52 it says when isa and isa is the name that the quran uses for jesus sensed disbelief in them he said who are my helpers in the way of allah the disciples said, we are helpers of Allah. We believe in Allah. So be our witness that we are Muslims. And the same thing is reiterated also in Surah 61, 14. Mm, mm. Uh, so so it, if it can be demonstrated that the original disciples of Jesus actually affirmed Christ's deity, then Islam is false because the Quran predicts the opposite.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty key argument in both directions for both Christianity to affirm it and indeed for for Islam to hold to its view that uh, that the deity of Christ uh, was not held by the earliest followers. Are you, are you happy with that as well, Yusuf, as, as being kind of the, the fundamental point at stake here in the debate?
2: Yes, yeah, 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 certainly. But just a clarification, um, Surah 352, when the term used by the disciples of Christ in Arabic, had bi-anna muslimun, which um, Jonathan translates as Muslim, one has to understand that the usage of the term Muslim in that particular context is is generic. The disciples obviously never spoke Arabic, and so uh, from a generic point of view, the term Muslim would simply be someone who surrenders his will to the will of God. So they were not in any way, uh, from the Quranic perspective, appropriating a specific label for themselves, as some Christians or some Muslims would probably want to believe, but they were using it in the broadest Uh, uh, sense in terms of which the term and the expression and the term Muslim or Islam was not in a sense historically circumscribed on that particular issue. But I think it's important that we discuss this, as Jonathan quite clearly points out, that there are similarities between Islam and Christianity, but uh, clearly Christians believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God, that he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, he's the personal Savior who died for the sins of the world. And, and, And our perspective in discussing this is that Uh, On these critical points, Christianity would, in fact, diverge from Islam. There is a body of work today in the world which would argue that on those same points, Christianity would also diverge from the true historical Jesus, which would be somewhat different from the Jesus... Um, of faith, or the Jesus of belief. So from that perspective, one could argue that these are fundamentally crucial issues, and and it's important to discuss and debate, and of course come and see where the evidence leads us. If the evidence leads us to one particular position, then we need to approach the subject, importantly, without Um, assumptions. I think more often than not, both Muslims and Christians in approaching material approach it with certain presuppositions, certain assumptions, and then want to come to the conclusion to fit those assumptions that are made at the inception. Rather, a more appropriate approach would be to unbiasedly approach the subject material and the documentary evidence, and then see where the documentary evidence leads us to. If it leads us to a conclusion which is somewhat different from the assumptions that we start off with and certainly uh, there needs to be uh, probably some degree of of, of, of redress or, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking up a position Hmm. in terms of which one basically is able to probably amend Top ones on well, let's, only-
1: let's, uh, let's get into this, and that's precisely what we aim to do, at least in the way we can within the time we've got here on Unbelievable. Open up these big topics and see where the evidence leads. And uh, we're asking you to do that if you're listening today, and uh, perhaps you've not made up your mind on whether Jesus really was the Son of God, perhaps this debate will help you to clarify that yourself. We'd love to hear from you, of course. If you have any thoughts on today's discussion, you can email them in, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. I'll read out some of the comments that came in by email towards the end of today's show on recent programmes as well. Um, You can also, of course, get in touch via the social media ways. That's at jb. For the Twitter account, facebook.com slash Unbelievable JB uh, to follow the show on Facebook. Those links and uh, the most recent programs, uh, more articles, uh, links to my guests and so on, all available, of course, from the website of Unbelievable. That's found at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Briarley. OK, well, let's open this up, gentlemen. We're asking, did the early church evolve the Christology of Christ over time? Did, did it evolve early church Christology? Uh, it is a fundamental question for Islam and Christianity. Yusuf Ismail, uh, a Muslim in South Africa, will be claiming that um, the, the early church corrupted the message of Jesus and that his divine Christology developed over time. Jonathan McClatchy returns as our Christian guest and uh, will be making the case that... Uh, the the belief in the deity of Jesus was present from the time of the very first followers of Jesus himself. So um, I don't know who maybe wants to start with making the case for the Christology of Christ. Well, shall we shall we come to you uh, first of all, Jonathan, and and then see see what Ismail has to say in response. Um, why why are you uh, confident that this Christology was not something that developed over? decades, centuries even, and finally crystallized in what we, you know, the creeds that we we have today in the Christian church. Why why are you confident that from the get-go, the earliest followers of Jesus believed he really was the divine son of God?
3: Okay, so I think that all I need to do in order to win a debate on this topic is to show that all of our earliest sources affirm the deity of Christ and or that the original followers of Jesus in high probability affirm the deity of Christ. Um, so I'm going to um, try to do both. Mm-hmm. So let me start with um, the original followers of Jesus, um, the disciples. Um, so I've got a number of arguments for this. I'll give you my strongest one since we are limited on time. Um, take the, the Apostle Paul, um, who is, as you all know, was uh, uh, was a, a, skept- a, a critic of Christianity. And, a, and he was an opponent of Christianity. And he converted radically on the road to Damascus, as reported in Acts chapter 9. Now he clearly affirmed the deity of Christ, and there's numerous passages I could go to. Um, Philippians two five through eleven, First Corinthians eight six. I'm happy to defend my exegesis of those if, if Jesus wants me to. Um, and I'm gonna, I would also argue that Paul was approved of, was approved by, and approved of the leaders of the Jerusalem Church, in particular Peter and James and mm. and, and and the twelve disciples. Um, so it, covered some of this ground last week, in fact, in the debate on the resurrection. But carry on, yeah. Right. So, for example, um, in First uh, Corinthians fifteen. Uh, he um, after he's talked about the, the resurrection appearances, he goes on to say that I am the least of the apostles. So notice right there, he he actually speaks very approvingly of the other apostles. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. For I worked harder than any of them, But though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so he preached and so he believed. And so there he implies that he is on the same theological page as the other sure. as the other apostles mm. and there's other reasons to think that too for example in uh, Galatians chapter 1 uh, he makes this um, he, he says that he went up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James to confirm his gospel, the gospel that he was preaching and uh, he um, and sort of off the, the disinterested off the cuff comment about the apostle James in verses 18 and 19 of Galatians 1 where he says, and after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And this disinterested off-the-cuff remark persuades many historians that he's probably telling the truth on this point. He's not making a theological point. Um, And we also have in uh, in Galatians chapter 2 we um he he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas to confirm that the gospel he's preaching to the Gentiles is the same as theirs, and I think it's unlikely he makes this story up in order to support his own apostolic credentials or authority because in the very same chapter he also mentions the dispute between himself and Peter in antioch um, and so it seems um, and also some of the apostolic fathers like Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp mention. Uh, Paul along with the Apostle Peter mm. while showing no knowledge whatsoever of any fundamental dissension mm. between them on matters right. Re-
1: so you're yeah. making the case here then, Jonathan, that Paul, along with the other Apostles, um, ha- w- are in Paul in a sense is our earliest source in the New Testament, were talking about Jesus in divine terms and there was no dissension between them on that front and, and, and this is very close to the time of Jesus himself the the the, the when Paul is writing effectively mm-hmm. and, and 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 so so just kind of t- take us to how that kind of for you does bring you confidently to the assertion that G- um, they they did believe in the deity of Jesus so
3: if there's a strong cumulative case as I contend that there is that the original disciples of Jesus uh, in particular Jesus' own brother James and Jesus' closest disciple Peter were approved of and approved by the Apostle Paul, mm. and and the fact that Paul affirms the deity of Christ suggests by extension that these individuals likewise affirm the deity of Christ. Okay. For instance, very quickly, Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 says, your attitude should be like one of Christ who being in very nature of God, did not mm. consider equality with God something to be held on to all costs, but humbled himself. Yeah, I, I so see on. where
1: you're going with this, right? So, so this is the point, as I see it, yep. just joining the dots here. Sure. Obviously there are statements in the Gospels that we could take um, that appear to suggest Jesus is divine. Um, But you're saying if you're looking for the very earliest affirmation of Jesus' divinity, you go to Paul because he's the the earliest record we have writing about Jesus. And because Paul knew and affirmed and was friends with, and there was no dissension, it would appear, with those early followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus, his brother, um, Peter, and so on, uh, it's evident from that that they held the very same belief as Paul. So here we have, if you like, um, a, a kind of second hand, but very close to those people, uh, a confirmation that the first followers of Jesus did believe the same thing as Paul. And what Paul obviously believed was the deity of Christ. OK, so so this is a really interesting kind of way of getting into it to say uh, this is this is why we know that these early followers of Christ did did have this this high Christology. Um Shall we pass the baton then to Yusuf and see what Yusuf has to say on this? Okay, Yusuf, where where do you go with this historical argument?
2: Okay, just to respond and so that we are in sync in terms of what we are discussing. Um, you know, regarding the comments that Jonathan made about Paul. Firstly, the, the the issue and the core issue is: did the original disciples of Jesus, in fact, consider him to be divine in any context? And um, Paul was not an original disciple. He never viewed Jesus. He never saw him. He never lived in. Uh, never basically. Um, talk or spoke to him, other than, of course, a vision that he basically had. The fundamental point we can uh, uh, basically deduce from this also is that Paul in many instances was in conflict with the original disciples on conflicts, on questions of law, um, on questions of monotheism. In fact, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles were written particularly under the influence of Pauline theology, and so if there is any indication of the divinity or deity of Christ there, it would obviously be as a direct result of that influence. But more importantly, and in direct um, um, you know, uh, response to the assertion made by Jonathan about the fact that uh, uh, he was approved by the leaders of Jerusalem, that there was no conflict Between his belief and the belief of the disciples, and I think he cited Peter. If one looks particularly at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 4, there you have a passage. um, Just to paraphrase from memory, uh, whereby, in a manner of speaking, Paul, uh, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people came, um, or Paul in fact railed or spoke out and condemned a lot of people who came, and according to him, were preaching another Jesus. Now. This begs the question, who were these people preaching another Jesus? If one looks at the context of their passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks about a lot of these individuals be- being pillars of the church. Now, if one looks at some of the commentaries of biblical writers, in particular Jimmy Dunn, he would argue that this could in all probability uh, refer to possibly Peter, uh, James, and John. In fact, Peter basically... Uh, is one of the individuals on in which the church is said to be built. So this begs a question: that if indeed you have a situation that there was a total um, um, synchronicity between his beliefs and between that of the original disciples of Christ, then what would the interpretative model be for this particular passage? Um, it raises a number of particular points. Mm. The second issue is this: is that if, if you look at the context of of, of Paul, where he arose the nature of Jewish monotheism, particularly in the late Second Temple period. It's been discussed by a number of scholars, often in connection with early Christology. And in very broad terms, one can identify two distinct and fundamental approaches. The first approach is that, um, generally speaking, Second Temple Judaism was characterized by strict monotheism that, in a broad sense, made it impossible to attribute real divinity to anyone other than God. So from that perspective of Jewish monotheism, many scholars um, argue that Jesus could not have been treated as really divine within a Jewish monotheistic context. Um, so, so that only um, uh, you know, a radical break with Jewish monotheism could make um, an attribution of real divinity to Jesus possible. And this has been identified by a number of people, A.E. Harvey and Jesus and the Constraints of History, and in fact Richard Borkham himself, when he speaks particularly of Paul's Christology of the divine identity, and so from that perspective, in view of the you know um, uh, very Jewish character of earlier Christianity, uh, that particular approach tends to interpret the evidence in a way um, to to the extent in terms of which um, um, the the early church by and large were fundamentally monotheists in the absolute sense, and so any consideration of any individual or person Um, uh, who could be said to be divine or in terms of which divinity is attributed to him would be viewed as an aberration. It's only the revisionist approach of Second Temple Judaism which denies strictly monotheistic character. And so from that perspective, you have intermediary figures, you've got angels, you've got humans, you've got personified divine attributes or functions um, who are said to occupy some sort of subordinate divine, semi-divine status. And so the distinction between the one God um, and all other reality was, not, therefore, from that perspective, no means absolute from the context of the revisionist views of Second Temple Judaism. But coming to this particular point.
1: Well, look, we've, we've got, we've got a lot of info there. I, I wonder if we could we could tackle. I don't want to sort of <laughs> load up too many um, objections and responses and, and, and then have to, to tackle too many at a time in in response. Why don't we go to a slightly early break and um, we'll, we'll just reiterate some of those uh, issues you have with the way Jonathan brought across his case there. And then we'll see what Jonathan has to say and then and then uh, bat it back to you again, Yusuf, if that's OK. Um, you're listening to Unbelievable today. As ever, we're doing a Christian, non-Christian debate. And uh, that means today we're asking, did early church Christology evolve over time? It's a fundamental question for Muslims and Christians. Uh, the divinity of Christ, uh, was that effectively something that uh, evolved, was invented? Um, many Muslims would say it was. Um, because if you go back to the earliest followers of Jesus they were effectively Muslims themselves in the sense that they were monotheists they didn't believe in the deity of Jesus and so on uh, in common with um, Islam today Jonathan McClatchy is defending the view that the earliest followers of Jesus did believe in him as the divine son of God and uh, we'll be hearing what he has to say in response to some of these objections to his view that Yusuf has already brought up come back again in a moment's time for the second part of today's edition of Unbelievable
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection, and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash Show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash Show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio.
1: Welcome back to the show, Unbelievable, with me, Justin Briley, where you can get a weekly dose of apologetics debate, theology discussion. We do all kinds of issues here on the program. Um, today, we're asking, did the early church? ...involve or invent their Christology over time, as many Muslims claim. Yusuf Ismail joins me on the programme. He's a Muslim in South Africa, regularly engages in these kinds of debates with Christians. And uh, Jesus, of course, regarded as a prophet in Islam, but not as co-equal with God, as Christians would claim. Uh, Jonathan McClatchy returns as our Christian guest. And uh, his view is that uh, the Church's view of Jesus as the divine Son of God was no invention or evolution, as Muslims claim... But was present there from the very first uh, followers of Jesus, and we were hearing his uh, case for that, and then a response from Yusuf as well in the last section of the programme. Again, if you want to get in touch yourself about today's show, unbelievable at premier.org.uk is the email address, and you can find more links and uh, today's show. Perhaps leave a comment under it at the website premierchristianradio.com unbelievable Uh, also details there of course for unbelievable conference 2016 happening on saturday the 2nd of july uh, in central london going to be a day of training for christians who want to uh, get get into some of these issues and know how to respond in fact there will be um, people there who are going to be uh, leading some seminars on islam and how you might respond if you were in a conversation with a muslim perhaps one like yusuf who's joining me on the program today Okay, well let's uh, let's get into uh, some of those um, responses that Yusuf had to your proposition that Paul is a good example of someone who obviously believed in the deity of Christ and that because there was no contention on this issue, as we can see from his letters and the accounts uh, of his relationship with the early church leaders, Peter, uh, James and others, um, therefore we can conclude that they they all shared this belief in the deity of Christ. Well, here were a few of the the things that um, from my memory that you uh, have brought up against that Jonathan Paul never met Jesus he said so you're you're kind of starting from uh, a bad point of view anyway uh, if you're relying on paul um, the um, he met other people that we told who were preaching another Jesus well that could conceivably have been Peter and those other apostles uh, how do you know that these these were weren't debates that were lively at the time and um, the nature of Jewish monotheism, which um, fundamentally could not, um, if you like, allow for anything like a sort of co-equal position of Jesus with God um, uh, and uh, cited a few scholars who he thinks support that kind of case. Do you want to come back on any of that and then we'll see what Yusuf has to say?
3: Sure. It's interesting, actually, that Yusuf has run himself into a dilemma because let me just quote uh, two very quick passages from the Quran. Uh Let me start with Surah sixty-one, fourteen. O ye who believe, be supporters of Allah, just as Isa or Jesus, son of Miriam, said to the disciples, "Who are my supporters towards Allah?" The disciple says, "We are the supporters of Allah." So a group from the children of Israel believed, and another group disbelieved. Then we supported those who believed against their enemy. And they became victors. Now this is reiterated again in Surah 355. When Allah said, O Isa, I am to take you in full and raise you towards myself, and to cleanse you of those who disbelieve, and to place those who follow you above those who disbelieve up to the day of resurrection. What's the Christian what's the form of Christianity that prevailed? It was Pauline Christianity. And so the Quran affirms that the disciples were believers in or, or believers in Islam, the religion of Islam. It also affirms that the Christianity that became dominant and and won out against its um, opponents was the form of 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 um, of the following of Jesus that Allah approved of, and the, the the form of Christianity that won out is what Yusuf, I'm sure, would call Pauline Christianity. Uh, so that's one issue that I would say, just mm. as an Islamic problem. Um, let me just respond to some of the things that Yusuf mm. brought up. So you mentioned 2 Corinthians 11 about people, there were false teachers presenting another Christ. Sure, but we, one has to interpret the the unclear verses in light of the clear verses. The clear verses indicate that Paul was on the same theological page as Peter, James, and the rest of the apostles. Um, that, that's what he seems to imply explicitly. Whereas, yes, there were other people running around with, with heresies, such as the Judaizers that he repudiates in Galatians and elsewhere, and people even presenting a false Christ. But our question that we want to ask is, does Paul... Is, does the evidence indicate that Paul was on the same theological page as the rest of the apostles? And it seems to me to be very clear that um, the weight of the evidence is strongly in favour and, and, and that case.
1: Yusuf would be second-guessing to suggest that those who preach another Jesus would, in, would be the apostles Do um, you, you think these would be secondary characters that are being referred to in Second Corinthians 11?
3: Right, It's the, the point is that it's unclear and it's ambiguous as to who he's referring to, but the clear verses all indicate he's on the same theological pages okay. as the apostles and What about this issue of the nature of
1: Jewish monotheism which would not have um, been able to allow for a category of of being coequal with god do, do do you kind of the
3: the problem there is that paul was a jew and he clearly affirmed that jesus was divine um, in, in the Philippians 2 passage that I quoted for, from verses 5 through 11, that's a, what scholars refer to as the Carmen Christi, which many take to be an ancient hymn that Paul is passing on. Um, and it, it uses the Greek word morphe. He was in the form of God. And then it says that he was found in the form of a, of a bondservant or a slave. And it uses the Greek word morphe again. So it puts the two in the same category. Just as he's in the form of a bondservant, mm. so he was in the form of God. And then it takes Isaiah forty five twenty three, where we're told in Isaiah that every... Knee will bow, every tongue shall swear an allegiance to Yahweh. And then this is taken and applied to Jesus himself. Mm. And so that clearly, I think, affirms that. I Jesus mean, Christ. I, I,
1: as far as my reading of Borkum w- was concerned, Yusuf, it's that um, he, when he talks about that passage in Philippians, he says when it says, talks about Jesus being the name that is above every name, he's referencing the name Yahweh. He's mm-hmm. putting him in the same category as Yahweh. So I've always understood Borkum to be very very much against you as far as the early Christology um, goes. He thinks that it's very clearly there in these passages by Paul. So so do you want to come back on any of these issues?
2: Yeah, well, look, just, you know, I didn't get to mark instead just to focus on on the reference that Jonathan made in respect to Surah 67, verse 14, um, where I think it's who, where the question is asked, who will be my helpers? And the disciples say, we are God's helpers, and a portion of the children of Israel believe, and a portion disbelieved. Um, you know Yusuf Ali and many other commentators would argue um, that effectively those who followed Jesus um, were those who basically permeated the Roman Empire, those who in fact brought new races within this circle and uh, through the Roman Empire, um, and eventually Christianity became the dominant religion. but one needs to understand this particular point that you know, up up, up until three hundred and twenty-five, there, there were many divergent branches of Christianity. Whereas, in terms of how it is in fact understood, and so to simply argue that um, there was a single brand of Christianity which affirmed the deity of Christ and that all others were aberrations is a very unscholarly approach to adopt. So, from that perspective, when the Quran in fact suggests that um, uh, we gave power to those who believed against the enemies and they became the ones that prevailed. At the very outset, it presupposes this notion that those who would eventually prevail or prevail in the finality would be those who, in fact, made a clear distinction between the oneness of God and Jesus as a subordinate servant and a mighty messenger of God. Uh, But I don't think you can adopt, uh, as Jonathan has done, an atomistic interpretation of this particular text, taking it out of context, taking it out of context in relation to Surah 5, uh, verse 114, which clearly makes a distinction. I mean, the entire thrust of the Quran is that Jesus is very much a man. Um, I would argue that the same uh, principle would apply within the context of the New Testament. But again, in reference to this particular passage, it simply basically refers to the fact that those who, in fact, affirm the oneness of God, the Tawhid, the monotheism, um, and those who basically believe that Jesus was, in fact, a messenger sent by God, are, in fact, the ones who effectively prevail. But this comes back to the initial point. What documentary evidence does Jonathan have to, in fact, state the original or the early disciples who considered Jesus deity? And, and, and if you look at the information that we have, you look at fundamentally, of course, the writings of Paul, no one denies that, and, of course, the Gospels. Now, this is a point that I wanted to make at the outset. The Gospels, um, it's generally agreed by the vast majority of scholars, were not, in fact, written by disciples. They did not have the names of the authors on the particular if you look at the Gospel of Luke, for example, it's generally agreed to be written not by a disciple but by a companion of Paul, who was not a disciple. Mark, for example, was generally agreed not to be written by a disciple of Jesus. Mark was said to be a disciple of Peter. So in other words, it's a second-generation account, very much removed from the primary role that Jesus occupied in Israel. Well, what's the possibility that a disciple would go and learn information about the Master from an individual who's a non-disciple? And, and not surprisingly, Robert Gundry, um, in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, also states the point. And he's a conservative, These are conservative scholars: Bachem, Gundry, these are conservative scholars. Gundry, for example, states that Matthew changed and improved the account and based his information and the Gospel that is contained very much largely on that of Mark. So what's the implications of a writer of Gospel who bases his work on somebody who was said to be a disciple of Peter, but not from the Master himself? John's Gospel, as the last particular Gospel, Raymond Brown, for example, goes on to point out that, effectively, you had a case of five stages of editing. You had the original stage, John, the son of Zebedee, preaching what he remembered about Jesus. You had the second stage, whereby a disciple of a disciple took what John, the son of Zebedee, preached, and then subsequently he wrote the end results of that particular preaching, and then you've got a case whereby... a a, a very much a fusion of the text itself and the context. It's very much like Jonathan preaching in a church, and then effectively uh, you don't know the distinction between now the text and a lot of what Jonathan is preaching. And of course the third stage, which um, my good friend James White agrees about, you have information in John's Gospel whereby there seems to be an indication of an external redactor or an editor. I mean the 21st chapter of the book of uh, John. So at at, at the very outset, when we want to rely on information um, in terms of coming to the original um, hypothesis that Jesus is, in fact, divine, we are forced to rely on documentary evidence. And when when you look at the evidence, the evidence is, is increasingly questionable, but more particularly, and this is where, you know, you mentioned something, Justin, about Richard Volkamp, um, and the fact that he would disagree with me on certain instances, I think I, you mentioned the issue of the common Christy. What Vorkham would agree and, and, and promote with the idea is that when he when you compare the gospels one to another, you can clearly see how um, the, the, the the versions and the stories of Jesus would change to reflect a higher view of Jesus. In terms, so, of some the writer, kind of pr-
1: progression, yeah, some kind of evolution, as I you say. There is, and it's yeah. not
2: it's not, a dis- it's not a dishonest assessment, uh, Justin, to make this because you know it's, it's always dismissed, but by, uh, by a lot of conservatives. But 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 it, it seems to be the scholarly consensus in the world today that there is an individual in which it, in which individual reports are changed and adapted to raise the view of Jesus. In many ways, I mean, John's Gospel, for example, the account in John 3:16, or the "I am" sayings of Jesus, um, or where he purportedly. Uh, appropriate deity points up, as in.
1: So, I mean, so in, we, in the we we let let me draw draw that. Just just allow Jonathan to respond then, because um, we've moved into I think importantly mm. the area of the gospels themselves, and um, I think we wanted to get to this anyway. So it's good that uh, Yusuf brought us here, um, because for you, what's their value, Jonathan? And and how much do you concur with Yusuf that there is this sort of um, increasing? Deification of Jesus in the later gospels than, say, the earliest gospel, which which we believe to be Mark. Um, and and is this a problem? Um, is this true that we we sort of can't really rely anyway necessarily on these as their secondhand accounts? They're not written by the direct followers of Jesus. They're often written by followers of the followers of Jesus, and that kind of thing. What what's your take on all of this?
3: First, let me just say a very quick word about um, three fifty five and sixty one fourteen in the Quran, and I'll talk about the gospels. Um, Okay,
1: so we're going back here to the the, the Quran where you've made
3: this contention that it
1: says that um, Allah would, uh, that the, the, the true nature of Christians would, would would win over and and that's Pauline Christianity as far as you can see you, you
3: want to come back to right that? Okay. very quickly um it, it does say that they will win out until the day of resurrection which which suggests a continuous winning out or continuous victory over the non over the non-muslims now in now I'm in quite good company in my interpretation of this verse for example or who's a very renowned um, medieval Quranic commentator. Um it says of sixty one fourteen, it was said that this verse was revealed about the apostles of Jesus, may peace and blessing be upon him. Ibn Ishaq, that's the earliest extant biographer of Muhammad, stated that the apostles and disciples that Jesus sent to preach there were Peter and Paul who went to Rome. And Ibn Ishaq, of course, in seeker Zo Allah, the earliest extant biography of Muhammad, he he says he he affirms Paul as a true apostle, also al Tabari, who's a very renowned 10th century Muslim a historian and Quranic commentator, also affirms the same thing, that okay. Paul was a true apostle.
1: So you, you're, th- this is you kind of throwing the ball into um, Yusuf's court and perhaps he'll want to bash it back again, but saying that there's some issues in the Quran he has to deal yeah. with, quite apart from um, the, the record of the New Testament. Okay, but, yeah, but yeah. coming back, to back the then Gospels. to the Gospels, sure. what, what are your, what, how do you respond to some of these criticisms about whether we can, A, trust them uh, to have accurately reported and B, this, this contention that they you do see a development in the Gospels of Jesus' deity.
3: Sure. Um, so all I need to show in order to demonstrate that uh, Yusuf is incorrect on this point is show that the earliest sources uh, that we can derive from the Gospels affirm a high Christology. So let's start with that. Let's look at um, Matthew 11 and Luke 7, for example. Hmm. In Matthew 11 and Luke 7, Jesus takes uh, the passage from Malachi chapter 3 and he applies it to John the Baptist as um, as the forerunner that Malachi prophesied about in in uh, Matthew chapter in, in in Malachi chapter three, so we read. Uh, so he's speaking about John the Baptist, and he says, As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Um, and then he goes on to talk about. Um, um, he, he goes on from uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven has um, for, been forcefully advancing, and for, and um, forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And then verse 19, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. So um, that that's a that's cue a source. Um, that's a cue saying because it's found in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. And so it's it, it predates both Ma- okay. Matthew so, so and Luke.
1: Okay, so it's commonly agreed among scholars that, that these sayings come from um, an earlier, an earlier called, tradition, called yeah, Q. exactly, yeah. or mm-hmm. a
3: collection of sources okay. that's collectively referred mm-hmm. to as Q, um, which is independent of uh, which which is which is independent of Mark and and seems to precede Matthew and Luke because of their similarity of the wording and the similarity mm-hmm. of the way they present. And the how does that particular
1: quote um, affirm the deity of Jesus?
3: So he, so in Malachi chapter three, we read about how um, a messenger was sent by Yahweh to prepare the way for Ha Adon, to come to his temple now, Hat Adon cannot refer to anyone besides Yahweh, and so if John, if he if Jesus here identifies John the Baptist as the one preparing the way, as in Malachi three, and he identifies the Son of Man as the one whose way was prepared for, then he thus implicitly in, identifies, he himself, identifies
1: himself, as God. himself as God. That that's an interesting one. I've never actually seen that particular passage used, um, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting way of doing it. Um, and 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 as far as the you know this general point that Yusuf has about the, the the fact that it seems like you get more of the deity of Jesus in passages of John than you do in the corresponding passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, does he have a point there? Or, or do you are you happy that as long as you've got one source that's early that, that corroborates Jesus' deity, you don't have to worry too much about?
3: No, we can go further and we can keep going. Um, take, for example, in Mark chapter 1, then Mark Yusuf would um, take to be the earliest of the Gospels or some... There's some scholars doubt that. but I mean, it's the mainstream position that Mark was probably written first. Um, now, in Mark chapter 1, read in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of God is a textual variant. But verse 2 says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, and you quote from Isaiah 40, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for Yahweh, make straight, pass for him. And then it continues, And and so John came, so it's identifying John the Baptist as the one prophesied, Mm -hmm. baptizing in the desert uh, region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. um, They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And uh, and this was his message. After me, so this is the one he's preparing the way for, according to Isaiah 40 will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the one who's, who John the Baptist prepares the way for is Christ, whom Isaiah 40 takes to be Yahweh.
1: Okay, so again, it's it's this inference there that, therefore, the the gospel writer is intending you to know that Jesus is... Yahweh effectively is co-equal. I mean, um, okay, we, we've got quite a few interesting perspectives to pick up there. I mean, one final thing just before Yusuf comes back is, you know, Yusuf says these are all effectively second-hand accounts. Though, um, should that influence our thinking about about this and whether they're accurate portrayals of what Jesus said and did and so on, because they're they're written not by the people. That they they traditionally attributed to um, necessarily.
3: I actually um, disagree with the view that the gospels are unlikely to be written by the individuals to whom they are attributed. Um, so, for example, um, take the Gospel of Mark. You know, Mark is an unlikely choice of of author for a gospel because you know, there's certainly better individuals that you could go with, such as mm. a Peter or James or mm. or someone like that. Um, and in fact, the second century and third century apocryphal forgeries routinely attribute them to high yeah. profile figures. In fact, in uh, Justin Martyr's um, First Apology, he mentions the the memoirs of the apostles, which he um, which he also says are also called gospels. And um, he mentions in particular um, the memoirs of Peter. And he says in the Memoirs of Peter, the sons the sons of Zebedee are renamed Boanerges, or the sons of Thunder. And he tells us that um, Simon is named Peter. Now, both of those occur in the Gospel of Mark. Neither of them occurs in the extant fragment we have of the Gospel of Peter, and the Boanerges incidents only in Mark. And so that suggests that he's talking about the Gospel of Mark, which is consistent with the other evidence, because um, Papias and, um, and others, Irenaeus and others, tell us that Mo- that Mark's material he, uh, is passing on the preaching and the teaching of Peter and so it goes back to the teaching of Peter and affirms the deity of Christ Well look, we're,
1: we're, we're giving you a good, good sketch in there to, to to respond there to Yusuf. Yusuf, um, so what what do you want to say in response? Again, there's lo- lots of threads to pick up here, isn't there?
2: Yeah, there's a lots of points to pick up um, The first point is this, um, Jonathan makes mention in sixty one verse fourteen about Kurtubi and Ibn Ishaq and of course uh, Ibn Jariq Tabri. Tabri was not a a scholar by any means, nor even a historian. He was a chronicler. In other words, he got information from many people, and he simply wrote down what he got. But be that uh, as it may, if these individuals, in fact, affirmed that this, in fact, referred to the disciples, and um, I think Jonathan was referencing to the fact that they may have alluded to Paul. Certainly, even from that perspective, um, these particular individuals written from a point in time far removed from us, whereby we can make a discernment in terms of separating the wheat from the shelf. They would presuppose and assume that Paul, in fact, affirmed Jewish monotheism. So they, they, to, to presuppose, to, to now suggest that um, these particular uh, writers and Mufasirim were, in fact, using this particular verse to allude to the fact that it referred to Paul and so on, and to somehow, in a roundabout way, argue for the deity of Christ. It, 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 it's very scholarly. Uh, it's a very, it's a very poor scholarly approach because it, it presupposes at the very outset that Kotubi and Ibn Hazak and Ibn Jarir would also affirm what in fact Paul believed. And of course the case is, is totally ludicrous. They would not believe that. They would not, then certainly believe in the distinction between God, Jesus, and so very much the voluntary subordination that Jesus played out when he was on the earth. So simply citing him um, as an authority on the basis that they basically commented that this, in fact, was somehow or the other an allusion to Paul and perhaps some of his companion. And on that basis, now, in a roundabout way, argue that, look, here is a case whereby uh, the information of the dead in Christ is a very poor unscholarly approach. Rather, I would look at this particular verse from a historical perspective, and, and one must bear in mind that a lot of these particular commentators were very much influenced by the tradition of their. Uh, time. They would not have, as we do have here right now, a complete collection of the New Testament, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in one entire collection, or the entire Bible, as we have um, in, in our particular possession today. But they would probably have some access to some of the materials, a lot of influence by old tradition, and so their, their commentary was very much influenced by the uh, political context, and milieu, their own idiosyncrasies, and of course their own interpretation. and And the fact that that you are now citing that Ibn Kathir dates to about 700 years after the Prophet. The fact that they are now, um, some of the earlier commentators, Mm -hmm. in no way lends credence to the fact that they uh, are entirely factual, they could effectively be wrong. Rather, I would argue that this basic verse, uh, it doesn't speak about the Day of Judgment. It speaks about the fact that um, a, a portion of the children of Israel believed, a portion disbelieved, and God gave power to those who believed, against the enemies and they became the ones that prevailed so who are these people that believe that uh, reading this particular passage and 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 juxtaposing it with other passages of the Quran does this now refer to those who affirm the deity of Christ I mean that would be a very very ludicrous interpretation uh, very much reading into the text um, a, a, an assumption that one would want, want to okay.
1: See. Well, I get that you're, you're, you you disagree with him on on the way he exegetes that particular absolutely bit, bit of the Quran.
2: because effectively the, the the entire the entire corpus of the Quran speaks out fundamentally against um, the, the whole deity of Christ. So to now simply argue and twist the Quranic verse and then wrench it out of context to say, look, the people who prevailed were in fact those who followed Pauline Christianity. Oh. And here the Quran is saying those who prevailed were those who believed. Well, so le-
1: let's let's leave that to one side. Obviously, we've got right? just two minutes to, uh, to to just sketch out in this section of the program, Yusuf, um, your objections it's, to, it's, to, to it's two other two things. Two
2: minutes, but what I okay. can say, again, that um, in respect of the gospels generally, Um, clearly Matthew, in respect of the documentary evidence, and in in terms of the scholarly consensus, Matthew is widely recognized not to be written by Matthew. But even on the assumption that it was, in fact, written by Matthew, 90% of scholars in the world agree, including people like Gundry, that Matthew used a lot of marks material. Now, this begs the question that even if Matthew wrote Matthew, and Matthew was a disciple of Christ, meaning he was in his lifetime, he lived with him, he talked with him, he spoke to him, why would he use uh, the work of somebody who was a non-disciple in order to give information about the Master? It doesn't really make sense from that perspective. Um, I did mention quite earlier um, in relation to Matthew, uh, Jonathan's quote about I think Matthew 11 and tying it up with Malachi, that Matthew in fact has reworked uh, material to bring out later uh, Christian uh, teachings. So, if there is an, a, a, a more pronounced perspective of Christ much later, um, I'm not surprised. I'll give you one classic example. Um, uh, 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 in, in, in Mark's account, for example, when Peter was asked who he was at Cesare Philippa, he says, you are the Messiah. In Matthew, Peter's replies, you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. So you can find that the addition, Son of the living God, is clearly an improvement. Um, pe- to have People pray to Jesus. When Jesus was asleep in a boat and a storm rocked the boat, in Mark the disciples awoke Jesus with a mild rebuke, teacher, do you not care whether we are drowning? But in Matthew, the very same account, and it's a parallel story, there they state that, Lord, save us, we are perishing. So you can see quite clearly that a rebuke was changed to a prayer. Now this begs a question, which is, it, it's a decent question to ask, that if if you have two writers writing the same account about the same incident, why would one particular writer change a rebuke to a prayer? Is, is there an agenda? Is there an underlying motif here? Okay. One can clearly see that there seems to be that the writer of Matthew and then Luke and then subsequently John we're writing these particular tracts not as historical works but as apologetic motifs okay. to prove certain well, le- theological points because we're, we're going to have to leave it there we're, we're just running now. it
1: out of time so I'm, I'm literally going to have to uh, pull you down there um, uh, Yusuf so that we can go to a quick break and come back see what Jonathan has to say in response we're debating did early church Christology evolve over time it's a Muslim Christian debate here on Unbelievable we'll be back in a moment I want you to come with me on a journey A journey to the cross of Christ, retold by refugees around the world. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, see The Stations, a photographic project spanning the refugee camps of the Middle East, the Calais jungle and the UK's asylum seekers. You'll meet the people making their own journey and discover how their story joins Christ's own story of suffering, persecution, death and ultimately hope. See the exhibition at St. Martin-in-the-Fields, London and request your free copy of this special Easter edition at premierchristianity.com slash the stations. Hello and welcome back to Unbelievable, I'm Justin Briley, your host this Saturday afternoon as we look at the question of whether the early church invented the Christology of Jesus, the deity of Christ, with my Muslim and Christian guest today. Now if you're interested in Islamic and Christian debate and dialogue, you might be interested to know that among the many great speakers and guests who are joining me for Unbelievable Conference 2016 is Beth Grove. She regularly engages with Muslim evangelists and trains Christians in how to respond and present the gospel in helpful ways. She's a colleague of Jay Smith's actually. Um, They're regularly engaged with many Muslims in debate and dialogue. Well Beth will be bringing some of her wisdom to this year's conference Uh, in particular one of the seminars she'll be leading is on Christ and Muhammad, how to persuade a Muslim that Jesus is the way. So if today's debate has got you interested you may well be interested in attending her seminar. Just one of many that will be on offer at this year's Unbelievable Conference 2016. Brought to you in association with the Christian Thinkers Society. Find out more and uh, do book in for those early bird tickets which end on the 15th of April at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable2016 and uh, look forward to you joining me there. If you possibly can Uh, What's happening later on on Premier Well we've got the profile between 4 and 5 Billy McFetridge talks to Sam Hales About his former life as a unionist Paramilitary in Northern Ireland Before he became a Christian At the same time next week for Unbelievable We'll be airing the first of two debates Between two high profile people In the world of New Testament criticism Bart Ehrman is well known as a critic Of the New Testament And Richard Borkham well known as a Defender of the eyewitness testament of the Gospels well that's what they'll be debating next week Airman has a new book out called Jesus Before the Gospels and join me for two shows debating how the Gospels came to be written whether we can trust oral tradition and are they really the product of eyewitness testimony should be two fantastic informative and enlightening shows coming up in the next two weeks here on Unbelievable time to get into the last part of today's show
0: You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio.
1: So as we conclude today's programme, we've been asking, did early church Christology evolve over time? One of those ones where you have to listen carefully and you have to hear... um, There's so much that we haven't been able to cover and it's always the frustration of even an hour or so of discussion uh, only grazes the surface. Yusuf Ismail has been our Muslim guest. He's from South Africa and he's been making the claim that the early church corrupted the message of Jesus and that his divine Christology developed over time. He's been making that case that the Gospels in particular, you can see the evidence of this, that the earliest Gospels compared to the later Gospels see um, a kind of evolution of Jesus' deity and so on. Um, Then um, Jonathan McClatchy has been making the case that actually uh, the earliest sources we have affirm Jesus' deity. And that's all I need to show uh, Yusuf and other Muslims that the earliest followers of Jesus believed in the deity of Christ Um, and so we've had a really interesting uh, debate on this Um, we before we do get to the end I want to make sure we mention both your websites gentlemen I know Jonathan from last week that yours is apologetics-academy.org if people want to find out a bit more about you and uh, take their apologetics training to the next level is there a website people can find more about you Yusuf and, uh, and what you do?
2: Yeah, well, there is a website that focuses a bit on our teachings and our discussions. It's www.ipci.co.za. That is a website of the Islamic Propagation Center International, um, and it focuses a lot on our discussions. You'll, they'll uh, find
1: material and, uh, along along these lines there I'm sure and some of your yeah, debates I'm, I'm guessing yeah.
2: and updates on some of the yeah. programs
1: Well, cer- Certainly these kinds of debates that we do on Unbelievable on the radio we, we're limited in time, you, you obviously have more more time for those public debates that you've both participated in and there's plenty of those online and at your websites if people want to find have a little bit more space to to see these views developed and debated um but but let's come back to you jonathan um because um again uh yusuf was pressing home the point there in that last section of the program that you do see this development of the divinity of jesus he gave an example from um the story of jesus in the boat during the storm and in mark the disciples say to him um uh, they give him a rebuke lord you know can't you see that we're going to die here whereas in matthew i think uh they they it turns into a prayer um lord save us and so on um so so what w- what do you make of this do, do you think that this this has any weight as far as you know this d- developing christology thesis that uh, that use putting forward
3: the problem with the argument is that it commits the understated evidence fallacy, and so it only cites some of the evidence and some of the data points when there's other data points that need to be considered as well. So let's take some counter-examples. For example, let's go to, um, in Mark chapter 9, you have the story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy performing an exorcism, and we read... Uh, uh, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, "I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up um now the 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 part about him looking like a corpse and people saying that he's dead is not found in Matthew nor Luke's account of the same story. you can find it in Matthew seventeen or in Luke chapter nine. And, then, and just to give another kind of example, take the trial narrative where Jesus is at his trial before the high priest. And the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? This is in Mark 14. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, which is a declaration of the declaration deity of Christ in itself. But be, but be that as it may. Now, if you go over to uh, to, uh, to the parallel accounts in the other synoptics, um, where, Je- where Jesus asked that question, um, are you the christ um uh, the, son, the son of the blessed and he says you, it, it is it is you that says that i am and so you have this um development going the opposite direction mm. it seems and so if you if you yeah
1: so so your your argument being there that um it cuts both ways you you um there are differences, obviously, between the Gospels and the way they relate the stories, but it's not always increasing deification. Sometimes you get more of a kind of view of the deity of Christ in Mark than you do yeah. in a, in the similar passage in Matthew or, or Luke or whatever. Um, okay, um, I, I mean, okay, do, do you want a, a quick response to that, uh, Yusuf? A quick
2: response. Okay, that's fine. Just a quick response. Um, I think what, what Jonathan was referring to was telescoping, whereby you have a parallel account and effectively... One particular gospel gets um, a particular information, and another gospel either gives more or less information. And that was called telescoping literature. I'm not, I'm not questioning that, and I'm not questioning uh, the motif of the writer to do that. What I'm speaking about is something different. I'm speaking about clearly a, a, a an evolved pronouncement about the very nature of Christ. I mean, I'll give you an example, something which is very classic. Um, Mark, for example, um, has Jesus beg God to save him from the cross though he eventually submits to God's decision. but in John's gospel I believe it's chapter 12 verse 24 Jesus openly declares that he will not be saved uh, you know on the contrary he goes and says that uh, he asks God to go according to, to, to plan so Jesus in John obviously came to die for the sins of the world and so he declares that no one can take his life away from him since he has a, to lay down his own life and take it up again I think in John chapter 10 Um, But this is not the case in Mark's gospel. Um, Jesus declared in John that no one can take his life from him. So since he gives it of his own accord, even the scene of the arrest has to be modified. You find in Mark, Judas um, has to come and mark Jesus with a kiss. He kisses him. But in John, Judas doesn't even come close to Jesus. He's viewed as very much a cosmic character, and his breath typically blows the crowd away. Now, unless Jesus gives himself up, he cannot be arrested in John's gospel. So can multiply examples what jonathan was talking about was telescoping i don't question that i do accept that that is in fact the case you've got many accounts in the gospel where one gospel telescopes another particular car what i'm talking about is clearly modification and improvement about the imagery of jesus for later readers so the writers in in, in a general sense did not intend for, to, for us to make comparisons because they were writing for different communities each gospel was circulated independently and then eventually they were collected and passed down as a single book and my perspective is that identifying them and looking them at them in the historical context taking into account that they were written independently one can clearly see that a difference in terms of the image of christ in terms of the nature of christ is more pronounced as sure. we go from one well you, you've made the case of the next the image that... of jesus in john is much larger than that of mark you made in john he takes on cosmic dimensions He makes many statements of the I Am Sayings... And so on and so forth. You've now, made the, the, the,
1: distinction. the case very well. I'm just aware of time again, so I'm, I'm going to allow Jonathan a quick response and and we'll, we'll start to have to wrap things up then.
3: So let's deal firstly with uh, the issue of Jesus' self-understanding concerning his death. And, you know, In the Gethsemane incident, for example, he says, let this cup pass from me, and then he submits himself to the will of God. Whereas in John, we read that, uh, in, in John chapter 10, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Mm-hmm. And so does this show an evol- evolution in, in thought concerning Christ no Um, take for example in Mark chapter 10 this is the same gospel of Mark the earliest gospel according to Yusuf and this is quoting from verses 32 through 34 they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed followed, um, were afraid Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him. Flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So that is that. Jesus seems very well aware of what's going to happen to him and willing to go to the cross.
1: We're going to have to draw a close here because um, we we could continue debating this all day. We always could continue these debates all day on unbelievable, but but we uh, time has run out. Um, so I'm just going to leave you both a chance to to make some concluding comments, um, and I'll limit you to a minute each, if that's all right. So Yusuf, do you want to give your your final thoughts as we uh, conclude our debate? Okay. on on whether early church Christology evolved. When you study
2: the Gospels today, uh, there seems to be a trend in conservative circles to represent Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so my particular thesis is that to find the real historical Jesus, you have to retrace the trend from John back to Mark. But how about beyond Mark? Because when we compare Mark with the later Gospels, we note the modifications in the later ones. And if we could compare Mark with its predecessors, we would find that Mark has also modified his story Uh, But that basically is another particular study. My conclusion on this particular point would be the Quranic point, is that um, to find the real historical Jesus, I believe we can find him in the Quran. Uh, I believe the Quran can be demonstrably proven to be the word of God, and particularly when the Quran says, O people of the book, O Jews and Christians, come to common terms between us, that we worship none but one God, that we associate no partners with him, and that we take not from amongst ourselves lords and patrons other than God. And if they then turn back, then proclaim unto them that we are indeed submitters to the ultimate will of God. And I'll leave it
1: at that. Thank you very much for being part of today's debate, Yusuf. Okay, 60 seconds for you too, Jonathan.
3: Well, I I thank Yusuf for taking the time to have this discussion. It's been very um it's been very interesting to have, and um, I thank him for doing it. Um, I I think you know the the arguments that I presented in in today's d- discussion were that the early all the earliest sources point to the deity of Christ. We have the Carmen Christi quoted by Paul in Philippians two five through eleven. We have First Corinthians eight six, which is where he basically develops upon the Shema. We have um, and and um, Paul seems to be um, approved by and approves of the the leaders of the Jerusalem Church and so on, and then we. have have the earliest sources that we pre- are preserved for us in the Gospels, and we have Q, um, the commonalities between Matthew and Luke that are absent from Mark, and we also have the Gospel of Mark, which all affirms the deity of Christ. So I think that I'm well grounded in saying that the earliest Christology was a high Christology.
1: There you go. And that was less than 60 seconds. So <laughs> Thank you for summarizing the entirety of your argument uh, in such a short time. But um, I appreciate that uh, there's much more ground we could have covered. And again, I would recommend you to pursue this further if you want to. Why not look up some of the debates that uh, Yusuf has been in with people like james white for instance uh, why not look up uh, jonathan's debates as well in this area uh, with others including uh, shabir ali uh, you've been on my show debating people like abdul rahim green and others so um, lots more you could go and see uh, the websites again uh apologetics hyphen academy dot org and i'll make sure yusuf's is also from the website of unbelievable as well that's uh, all available at com slash unbelievable yusuf thank you for joining me today it's
2: been a pleasure thank you um hope jonathan has a good time in south africa i hope to see him if i am around but if i don't uh, i wish him well on his trip
1: thank you uh yes jonathan you're off to south africa to do some more debates <laughs> you're a bit of a glutton for punishment at the moment with all these debates aren't you but um <laughs> uh, i hope that goes very well as well and thank you for being with me for two weeks on the show thank to, you. Uh, to debate these two issues um and uh, i thank you for listening as well if you want to get in touch well i'm going to give you the ways again to do that in just a moment's time as we look at some of your feedback to recent shows Unbelievable with Justin Brierly. Well, if you'd like to get in touch about today's program uh, and indeed last week's on the resurrection, and we'll be hearing some of your feedback to that in a moment's time uh, then do uh, get in touch via unbelievable at premier.org.uk that's the email address i always encourage your comments as well via Facebook and Twitter too and uh, you can like the page follow me on Twitter at unbelievablejb my Twitter account facebook.com slash unbelievablejb a good way to keep in touch with what's happening on the programme as well and I try to keep that uh, Facebook feed updated and the Twitter account with interesting articles and that kind of thing so for instance over the Easter weekend I posted up a couple of little interesting uh, interviews I'd done in the past with Tom Wright on the uh, cross and the resurrection so you might want to check out the Twitter feed uh, to look at those just a quick reminder that the unbelievable Christian and Skeptic discussion group meets at the William the Fourth pub in London on Monday April the 11th uh, that's a, a meeting of unbelievable listeners both Christian and non-Christian who get together to debate some of the issues that get raised on the show from time to time if you want more details uh, look it up at uh, the uh, meetup.com website so they're going to be looking at at deficiencies of atheism from the philosophy of mind Bruce Blackshaw is going to be setting out some of the reasons why physicalism the idea that all that exists is the physical states of our brain um, is a defeater for atheism is problematic at least for, for atheism uh, as a worldview um, uh, in terms of philosophy of mind so uh, that's uh, that's something to look for as well let's go to some of your feedback and uh, we'll start with some feedback on the resurrection uh, debate from last week that was again Jonathan McClatchy and a Jewish skeptic uh, Michael Alter who were debating some of these so-called minimal facts surrounding the resurrection and uh, Michael alter had done a lot of work in that area and was presenting his objections to the resurrection. Um, But firstly, Dr. A. Majid Katme from the Islamic Medical Association in the UK wants to say, if you would allow us to express the Muslim view for 1,600 million Muslims in the world regarding Jesus' death on the cross... All Muslims in the world believe that, as mentioned in the Quran, Jesus was not crucified. A lookalike was crucified and Jesus was not killed on the cross, but he was taken down alive to God and he will return back to earth to tell the truth and do the right things. Well, I am aware that most Muslims do believe that. I don't think actually it's absolutely the case that all Muslims believe a lookalike was crucified. For instance, I know that Shabir Ali, who's been on the program before, believes it was Jesus who was crucified, but he didn't die on the cross. Um, uh, Though I I accept that uh, the the vast majority of Muslims say that uh, someone else replaced him on the cross. Um, That we have certainly debated a few times on the program before. Uh, Michael Praverman says um, in regard to the resurrection, Matthew 28, 6. He's not here for he is risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. Probably too simple, says Michael Braverman but no, um, that's obviously what Christians believe, they believe that the gospel writers tell the truth about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Um, That was what we were debating last week Um, Manuel says, I was gutted at some of Michael, your sceptics assertions in this debate, especially in relation to the Apostle Paul. What fascinates me about these guys is the manner in which they try to explain away the resurrection by purporting dubious claims after accusing us of making up stories. I prefer listening to inter honest folks rather than someone who with absolutely no evidence says that Paul left the Sanhedrin because he wasn't ordained? Seriously? These guys should come up with honest statements. All the same, it's been fun listening regularly from Nigeria. Thank you, Manuel. Um, Others weren't too impressed with Michael Alter's uh, debates and his objections to the resurrection. Mike in Canada says, I can't believe Michael Alter spent 11 years researching such hackneyed objections. It's not that all the arguments are without merit, but none of them are original. Basically, he's saying, as most other sceptical scholars have said that the biblical record is unreliable because the writers had an agenda and there's little to no impartial corroborating information. Well, surprise, this is a fact for all ancient history up until the modern age. This kind of ultra-scepticism says that we can know nothing of history until the electronic age of radio and video. I'd be interested to know if he'd argue that all Jewish history is myth, legend and fabrication. The New Testament is better attested historically than the Old Testament. As for the comparison of Paul's experience with the risen Christ, to that of Joseph Smith or Muhammad, which might have some merit were it not for the fact that both were unique visions that were not experienced by anyone else and both gained power and wealth as a result in contrast Paul's experience was tested and vetted by the other apostles and his convictions led to his death Kevin in Oregon says, Great show this week. I almost always find myself at least somewhat sympathetic to the views and arguments of your non-Christian guest, but Michael Alter was simply frustrating. It was a case study in hyper-scepticism. No matter what the argument, his replies all boiled down to, how do we know that disciple wasn't lying? Or you can't prove it, so therefore it's not reasonable. If I'm ever convicted of a crime, I want Michael on the jury. Witnesses say the defendant was found holding the gun at the scene of the crime. Michael Witnesses can lie, and there's no proof, so their testimony is irrelevant. And Maybe he'd even add, plus, maybe the witnesses were mad that they didn't get ordained and so they made up the gun part. His adamant stance to not concede any reasonable historical point actually got comical towards the end. Given he was so uncharitable with historical material and that he allowed none of the simple deductions Jonathan made, I don't think he's reasonable enough to have earned another visit to the show. Great programme, keep the episodes coming, says Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Um, uh, Lots of interesting response to, to that show on The Resurrection. You might want to check out some of the responses on the uh, the, the actual show page as well. Premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, people who have been getting in touch uh, leave their comments very often underneath the latest show. And you're able to do that as well, engage in the discussion there. Uh, quite a few people as well getting in touch about the show before. Um, and you may remember we did a debate on the fine tuning of the universe. Again, two eminent guests joining me for that. Peter Millikan was our atheist and uh, Robin Collins was our fine tuning expert. expert. Expert, our philosopher on the side of the evidence for fine tuning pointing towards God. Um, Sue, I think, sums up the feelings of many listeners who listened to that particular edition of the programme. Says, Well, my brain is quite literally fried after today's show. I listened carefully, heard words, thought I understood them. And yet, uh, so glad I already know God. Absolutely brilliant show, even though my little eyes often cross over and die trying to follow it. Many thanks, Justin. So thank you very much. I accept that it was one of those which kind of got sometimes technical, uh, sometimes, you know, philosophical. That's the beauty, in a way, of of being able to download the show on on your iPad or iPod or uh, your phone or whatever. Because you can go back and listen again if you didn't quite understand what he meant by that particular thing. Uh, it's always useful isn't it to be able to rewind Um, Darren is an atheist and uh, when it comes to the uh, admissibility of fine tuning as evidence for God says the obvious thing missed is the probability of a God was never determined if God's probability is zero then it doesn't matter how fine tuned the universe is God still doesn't exist and there are very strong arguments that demonstrate that the probability of God is zero whereas there is actual math that makes a natural universe probable Well, you don't explain in this very short email, Darren, what uh, those arguments would be that make the probability of God zero. Obviously, if if for some other reason the probability of God is zero, then I guess, yes, the fine-tuning could never possibly give evidence towards the existence of God. But I would have said surely the fine-tuning itself as an argument for the evidence of God is precisely one of those things that tends towards the probability of God not being zero. So therefore, that's exactly the kinds of arguments we use to, to kind of point towards evidence for God and so on. Anyway, uh, thank you for getting... In touch. Uh, Dan, uh, who commented on that programme on the website, says, I think one of the most interesting things about the Infinite Worlds proposal, most often used to refute fine-tuning, was that it was foreseen 1,600 years ago by St Augustine. He said that for people who couldn't accept the idea of a creation point, they'd be forced to dream up innumerable universes. The Infinite Worlds hypothesis is presented as cutting-edge science, but really the proposers are way, way behind on this one. 1,600 years ago, a theologian was talking about the theory. Interestingly, still, atheists are always demanding evidence for the existence of God, but when real evidence is found indicating that the universe appears to be designed with mind-boggling precision, those same atheists immediately start to dream up other worlds and alternate realities where the science is beyond all understanding, just to avoid the evidence of design in our reality. The peculiar thing is, if you have an infinite number of universes with completely different kinds of life and science, that would be completely different from ours. It's possible, or perhaps even likely, that one of those universes could exist in a way that fairy magic and Santa Claus like characters could be real things doesn't it logically follow that peter millikan is seriously entertaining the possibility that there could be other universe where the physics is beyond all our understanding in which fairy magic and Santa Claus type characters could be real things i'm just saying if you want to make up infinite worlds out of your imagination with zero evidence and call it serious science can't really complain when others follow your logic to its obvious speculative conclusions Uh, thank you very much Uh, interesting comments uh, on both those last two programs and i welcome your comments on today's show as well you can always email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk So all we've time for this week I'm afraid Uh, do make sure though as I mentioned earlier to book in your early bird tickets to Unbelievable before the 15th of April we'd love to see you at this year's conference in central London and I'll be releasing more details about the conference in coming weeks as well Um, next week we've got a fantastic programme for you let me tell you what's coming up then You're unbelievable (laughs) It's the first of two episodes in which Bart Ehrman squares off against Richard Borkham both heavyweights in the world of New Testament criticism Ehrman's new book Jesus Before the Gospels claims that we don't really have an honest picture of Jesus from the accounts given to us in the Gospels and so we're going to be debating uh, how the Gospels came to be written down how whether we can trust oral tradition and whether they really are the product of eyewitness testimony that's certainly an area of expertise for Richard Borkham who of course wrote the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses so come back for the first of those two shows at the same time next week in the meantime thank you for being with me Sam Hales is here next with The Profile